Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. Hey, how's it going, New Hope? Uh, Pastor John here. Hope you're doing well. Sometimes we get words wrong. There's actually a word for this. It's called mondegreen. And a mondegreen is when you mishear a word or misunderstand a word, sometimes with very humorous results. A classic example of this is song lyrics. Have you ever been listening to a song and maybe on a road trip and you're singing it at the top of your lungs and somebody looks at you and they're like, that's not the lyrics. Like, what are you singing? I think we've all uh, been there before. Some some famous Mondegreens regarding song lyrics or uh, CCR, uh, uh, Credence Clearwater Revival. Uh, there's a uh, bad mood on the rise is the line. And I guess some people hear and sing there's a bathroom on the right and that's like a totally different song that changes everything. Johnny Nash, you may not know that name, but you certainly know the song, I Can See Clearly Now. It's a song that's been covered by a ton of people. The famous line is, I can see clearly now, the rain is gone. A lot of people here, I can see clearly now, Lorraine is gone. And Lorraine didn't go anywhere. So I'm, you know, that's illuminating for, for some of you. And then my, my, the one that I appreciate the most comes from my wife. I don't think she's the only one, but the famous uh, Elton John song, uh, Tiny Dancer. And my wife always heard, oh, hold me closer, Tony Danza. You know Tony Danza, so it's basically like ruining that song for all of you. You're going to giggle whenever you hear it. So we we get things wrong, and sometimes they get lost in translation. Uh, other languages. I read a story about a young woman who's dating this man. And she was meeting his mother for the first time from Mexico, so she English was her first language. This this young lady, and she was brushing up on Spanish, trying to learn some phrases to impress perhaps her future mother-in-law. So she thought she had it nailed. So when she, she met her, she, she said this Spanish phrase, what she meant to say that she was nervous. And what she actually said in Spanish is that she was pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Sometimes we, we get words wrong. And this is true with the Bible. We get Bible words wrong because we're dealing with words that are written in either Hebrew or Greek. And they're written a long, long time ago. And they're written to a distinct group of people. We always say at New Hope, the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. So to understand what the Bible has for us, we have to understand who it was written to. What did those words mean in those original languages? What did they mean to those people? So sometimes we we lose things in translation. We make words mean what we want them to, to mean, and we get them wrong. Um, I was uh, a New Hope Fred, as I was uh, promoting the series last Sunday, came up and reminded me of that that scene from The Princess Bride, those of you who are fans of The Princess Bride, is that one scene uh, where the three, uh, Fezzik and uh, Indigo and uh, Vizzini, are climbing the rope up the cliff, and Wesley, with the mask and the black, is chasing them. If you don't know Princess Bride, you should totally see it, but those of you who do know the scene. And uh, Vizzini, the whole time, is using the word inconceivable. 
that Wesley is catching up with him. And uh, Indigo turns to him and says, you keep using that word, but I don't think you know what it means. <laughs> and often I'm like, exactly. Uh, I've been, I, I hear Christians use words, or even teachers or pastors use words, or I hear people out in, in the world use words, and I'm thinking, that's not what that word means. So I thought, this would be an awesome series for New Hope. When we get a word wrong, our song lyric wrong in our normal course of life, Usually it's not a big deal. Maybe embarrassment in the case of that young lady or someone singing the wrong song lyrics. It's hubris and we laugh about it. When we get Bible words wrong, it can be devastating. It can totally misshape how we see God, how we see ourselves, how we see others. So we're launching into a nine-week series called What Does That Mean? And each week, we're going to take a different word, uh, a really important word in the Bible, either a Hebrew word or a Greek word or a word that's translated from Hebrew into Greek that's really important and formative to our faith, but a word maybe we sometimes get wrong. And we're going to take a close look at it. We're going to look at each word and, and say, what does this word mean in the original language? What does the Bible say about it? And then we're going to say, how do we misunderstand it? How do we get it wrong? And it will be a corrective so that hopefully we give it, get it right and it will allow us to, to better follow Jesus and share his love. So our, our word for today that we're going to start out with is a Hebrew word. And it's very simple. You're starting to learn another language here. And it's the word tov. And it means goodness. So now, you know, I could just end the sermon now and you all have a new word in your vocabulary. So if you go to a dinner party, you can impress people. If the food's good, you could be like, ah, this is tove. So we're going to dive into this word and really explore what it means. Uh, the, the impulse to, to really track down this word and understand what it means comes from a book from a guy I'm studying under, Scott McKnight, and it's called A Church Called Tove. He wrote it with his daughter, Laura, Behringer, and uh, I'm doing a program, a uh, doctor program under, under Scott. He's a renowned New Testament scholar, but Scott writes tons and tons of books. And this new book, it's a relatively new book, highly recommend it. A Church Called Tove will really shape much of what I say about this word Tove today. I think this might be Scott's most impactful and timely work uh, for the church, and we'll talk about that. Scott and Laura uh, spent a lot of time as part of a really large church in Chicago called Willow Creek Community Church, led by, uh, planted and led by Pastor Bill Hybels. A number of years ago, four or five years ago, allegations started to come out uh, about uh, Bill Hybels, and they were denied at first, but eventually it was uh, just uh, stories built up upon one another, and, and Hybels resigned. And the whole process of working through what happened and kind of maybe some cover-up and who said what and all that was just a mess. And there was tons of woundedness. And since then, it seems like every day we have another story of another pastor or another church, and it just it breaks my heart. It should break all of our hearts. The church needs to be better. So Scott and this daughter, having gone through that, and then Scott being a scholar, said, okay, the church is called to be so much more than this. The church is called towards tov or towards goodness. Uh, so... Um, so we're going to dive into that, and we're going to see what it might be like for New Hope. Uh, hopefully it is already, or it's becoming, but what would it be for New Hope to be a church called Tove? So uh, each week we will have a, uh, we'll be bouncing around a ton of different scripture in the series, but we will have a foundational passage in which the word is used, and our passage today comes from 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. So feel free to, to turn to that, have that out on your phones, be reading along. Uh, with Hannah as she reads. Hannah, take it away. 
1 Peter 2, 9-12 You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For He called you out of the darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. So our word for the day is again, tov, which means goodness. You saw that a couple times in that first Peter passage, and we'll, we'll return to it and make some comments and reflections, all that. The word tov, the Hebrew word, and its Greek equivalent, so it's the word tov, the idea of tov is translated in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, into a number of different Greek words, but they all reflect, as the authors are using that word in the Greek, they're reflecting back to this idea of tov. It's a predominant idea in scripture. This word is used over seven hundred times in scripture. Scott says in his book that the Bible could be called just a book of Tov. Uh, here's one example from the prophet Amos. And as these verses come up, we, we try to highlight for you where this word Tov is or is represented. Seek good, there it is, Tov, not evil that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, but love Tov and maintain justice in the courts. Tov uh, uh, can certainly mean moral goodness, but the foundation of the word means uh, well-crafted or something that uh, works the way it was designed to work. It can often and appropriately be translated beauty. There's great synergy between the word tov, uh, goodness, and beauty. When we say, we look at something and say, that's good, we oftentimes mean that's beautiful. It means kind of the same thing. Uh, philosopher, author Dallas Willard said, beauty is goodness made manifest to the senses. So Tov could be a well-played concert or a well-coordinated golf swing. My golf swing is definitely not Tov. Yeah, Tov could be the right word at the right time. It could be a, a well-planned event. It could be a yummy meal. It could be a math equation that's beautiful and works the way it should. Tov is when parents parent the way they're supposed to parent and when marriages work the way they're supposed to work. Tov is when churches operate the way God calls them uh, to operate. So in each of these messages, we'll, we'll, we have the word and we've kind of defined it now. Now we'll look at and ask, what does the Bible say about this word? This is how we understand what, what, it's, what it means. How did the biblical writers interact with this word? So uh, for one, uh, first point, God is Tov. So in this section, I'll be coming at you fast and furious with a lot of different verses. I think my, my notes are actually posted each week online so you can go and see, see the notes. If, if I'm going too fast for you, you can go back and, and dig in, or if you don't believe me, you can do that as well. So here we go, God is Tov. Here's some things that bear that out. When God in Exodus passed in front of Moses and he's revealing himself and Moses had to hide in the cleft of the rock, uh, this is what God says, I will cause all my goodness, my Tovness, to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. So God's very name is connected to Tov and his goodness. It's just so essential to who God is. The psalmist writes, you are Tov and what you do is Tov. 
teach me your decrees. So God is not only Tov, this is essential to God's nature, but God is also the source of all Tov. We see this on full display in King David's Psalms. David writes, how abundant are the Tov things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all on those who take refuge in you. Psalm 23, many of us know that. We did a series on that a while back. The last verse, verse six, it says, the Lord will chase us with Tov, chase us with goodness and mercy, all the days of our life. David also says, taste and see that God is Tov. And then another verse and song that I love, uh, David says, better or Tov, there's our word, is one day in God's house than thousands elsewhere. So anytime we experience goodness in any way, shape, or form, we know it orients or comes from God. We can't experience Tov apart from God. So that's the first thing the Bible tells us about Tov. Secondly, what God creates is Tov. And we see this in the opening pages of scripture. We're told at the beginning of our story that the earth is formless and void. And I just picture like a young kid and a table of art supplies or an artist at a table of art supplies and nothing's been made yet. That's kind of the scene that we get. Things are formless and void, but all the stuff is there to make. And God, the master creator, starts grabbing things and going to work. And we got, you know, stars and moon and oceans and land and plants and vegetations and flowers and birds and, uh, you know, creatures from the sea, creatures on the land. And then you and I. And at each point, I think a lot of us know these chapters, each point there's this rhythm. Genesis is poetry. So he creates and then he says he saw that it was what? Tov. And he saw that it was Tov. And he saw that it was Tov. It's beautiful. It's designed as it was supposed to be designed. And then he gets to the very end of it and he sets back and sees all of what he's created. And it says it was very Tov. So all that God creates is Tov. That is true for you and that is true for me. The psalmist tells us that God knit us together in the womb that you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made. We need to remember that in a world that we often feel shame and degradation, that God made us. I tell, us, I tell my girls, Eden and Juby, that all the time. I'm like, you're so beautiful. This is what I'm trying to tell them. I'm not talking about like in a, in a Hollywood way, although I think they are beautiful in that sense as well, but they're beautiful because God knit them together. I tell them no one is ever and will ever be made like you are. And that's true for you and that's true for me. So that should seep into the core of our being that we are Tov and we were created that way. A third, Tov is visible. We often think of Tov or goodness is like an invisible trait, like this moral Tovness. And it's in scripture, it's, it's anything but that. In the Bible, Tov is almost always visible. Tov is meant to be tangible. It's meant to be embodied. When Peter is sharing the truth about Jesus with Cornelius's house in Acts 10, he says, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power, and that Jesus went around doing tov, doing good. It was on full display for everybody. It was very visible. In the passage that Hannah read at the top, Peter writes, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. Scott in his book argues that generosity is one of the, the primary manifestations of Tov. When we see just generosity, that's like good, it's beautiful, it's the way it's supposed to be. My favorite college team, and certainly college basketball team, is University of Virginia Cavaliers. 
Go Cavaliers. So I was born in Charlottesville, where the University of Virginia is. My dad was doing his MBA when I was born, so I was born and bred to be a Cavalier fan. In the 80s, when I was a kid, they had a, a very successful basketball program, and then it was basically a couple of decades of nothingness. And then in 2009, they hired Coach Tony Bennett, and everything turned around. Knew a little bit about Tony Bennett. Uh, I was in Madison for 18 years, and Tony was an assistant coach at University of Madison. Uh, he, he's a passionate Christ follower, was involved in the church that I served at in Madison, and he was known to be an incredible coach and an even better human. Went on to Washington State, so some of you may have heard of Tony Bennett, won Coach of the Year there, and then was hired at Virginia in 2009. Totally transformed the culture of the program and, and, and the winning, uh, um, well, he turned around the losing and made Virginia a winning team. So in, uh, they had a numerous uh, winning seasons, ACC championships, and then uh, they had uh, a year in 2018 that they thought, everybody thought it was going to be a rebuilding year. It was anything but. Virginia went 31-3 and that year and had the number one seed in the NCAA tournament, March Madness. And then crushingly, they lost to a number 16 seed. It was the only time it's ever happened in the history of the tournament. I can't tell you how dark a day that was for Virginia fans everywhere. And I watched with sorrow the press conference that night and Tony came out and he acknowledged that he should have coached better, that they got beat, the team played better, it was totally humble. And then he said, look, it's basketball and these are young men and I'm doing a greater work around here than just winning basketball games, I'm forming up young men. And he said, uh, we grow through struggle and it reveals our character. And he's like, we'll emerge better from this. And I was like, wow. And like his Jesusness just came through in the press conference, total humility, a total right orientation. So the next year he returns with almost the exact same team and they go on magnificently, I would say, to win the national championship. So one of the, I think one of the greatest sports stories of all time, that same team came back from the defeat they had to then win the national championship. That following offseason, uh, Virginia rightly so offered him an extension and a huge raise. And here's the story that came out across the nation. It was carried on the front page of numerous newspapers because it was so shocking. Uh, Tony loved Virginia and he accepted the extra years on his contract, but he turned down the raise. You heard that right. He turned down the raise and he asked Virginia to take that money and give it to people on his staff that didn't make near as much and then spread it out to the other uh, programs in the athletic department that didn't have as much budget. And him and his wife, uh, they appeared at the press conference and said, hey, we have plenty. And if we can take opportunities to give out of our plenty and give it away to people who need it, we do that with great delight. The Virginia president just shook his head and said he had rarely met anyone as selfless as Tony. When I think we're all shocked at that story because when we see that, it's just a generosity that's almost absurd, but it's Tove. Uh, it's, uh, Tony's a follower of Jesus, and that's an act of goodness. So Tove is uh, finally, how does the Bible portray Tove? Tove uh, resists evil. Tove doesn't exist in a vacuum. Tov exists in opposition and resistance to evil. We already saw that in some of the verses uh, that we read. The Hebrew word for evil is ra. And so in the early pages of Genesis, we're told that we have uh, the tree of the knowledge of Tov and ra. From the very earliest pages, we're seeing this epic battle between goodness and evil that's on full display for everybody. Going back to the verses that Hannah read, Paul tells the churches, or Peter tells the churches he's writing to, to live such good lives that no one 
could accuse you of evil. And then later on, he challenges them to turn from Ra and do Tov, turn from evil and do good. Tov doesn't exist in isolation in scripture. It's, it's embroiled in this, in this battle, this epic battle with evil. And Tov resists, it's meant to resist the evil around us. Uh, Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, I'm gonna tell lots of stories today because I think it helps flesh it out. What, is, what does this look like? What does Tov look like? It looks like my friend Herman Green that many of you met a couple weeks ago. I interviewed Herman and Nike who co-pastor Abundant Life PDX up in Northeast Portland. And every time I'm with Herman, I learn and remember what it's like to pastor. Uh, Herman just embodies goodness. It's on full display in everything he does. He preaches good news and he preaches the gospel, but he also absolutely lives it out. A typical day from Herman, I just, I had to jot through this and go back through my mind to think like all the things that Herman does. He's providing new fam, uh, furniture for a family who had a fire in their apartment and lost everything. Uh, he is on site at the scene of many of the murders in our city, and we're experiencing a lot of them, to help and support families as they grieve. He's conducting funerals for victims of gun violence. He's uh, brokering peace between the gangs. He's known by all the gangs in this area to create safe spaces in the community. He spends sometimes his entire day on the phone helping people uh, with rent assistance so they don't lose their apartment. Uh, he serves on the school board. Every Christmas he dresses up as Santa and sits out in the front lawn and delivers gifts. He works behind the scenes to find out what kids need to kids that would never get gifts normally. He's building out a STEM lab in this church to help educate educate young people. We were uh, there recently with a couple of our staff and we were just talking about church stuff and then a young man's waiting patiently there. And when we get done, he said, hey man, what's up? How you doing? And, and this young man's car broke down. So we walk with him and literally just pop, pop open the hood and Herb, Herbert's got his car working and fixed in like two minutes. And goodness, goodness, goodness. I was like, hey Herman, what do you, what do you do in the summer? Are you going on any trips? He's like, yeah, I'm taking um, some people that are involved in gangs and, and gang violence with their kids and we're visiting uh, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in DC because I want them to remember where they came from. I want them to remember who they could be. Tove, 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 Tove. Sometimes I think the best thing we could do for our staff is just have everybody spend a couple days with Herman and, and hang out with him. So let's transition from what the Bible says about Tov and goodness to our misunderstandings. How can we get this word wrong? And I think we do. I think we all, we all struggle with this. So three ways in which I think we can misconstrue this word. One is that, uh, one misunderstanding is that only God can do good. Uh, Scott talks about this in his book when he started writing about churches being places of goodness and followers of Jesus being good, that he got a lot of pushback. And principally, people were quoting Romans 3.12. Some of you may have already been thinking about that verse. Paul says very clearly, there is none that do good, not even one. So you may say, John, you quoted Paul just recently saying that, that we should overcome evil with good. Is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth? No. Um, I had this uh, argument at my ordination when I was a young pastor. Um, I was in a denomination. I was, I was getting ordained and you have to write papers and then you get grilled by this big committee. And uh, I got in an argument with one of the ordination committee members. Don't do that. That is not wise. But I did. And it was about this very thing. I was arguing that people can uh, be good and people can do good. And this, this pastor on this ordination committee threw Romans uh, 3.12 at me, and we began this argument. 
And this pastor, with all due humility, misunderstood what Paul was saying. Because what Paul is saying is yet no one can be good apart from God. But as we follow God, as we channel God's spirit, of course we can be good. And of course we're called to do good. Uh, that guy was right, uh, wrong and I, I was right. But anyway, you shouldn't fight with the ordination committee. But let me, this is everywhere. So like this is an easy case to make. Let me just give you some instances. Paul tells the church in Galatian to not become weary in doing good because at some point they'll reap a harvest. He tells the church at Thessalonica to never tire of doing good. He tells young Timothy, Pastor Timothy, to devote himself to doing what is good. The author of Hebrews tells us to not forget to do good. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus says, wise people are the ones who live a good life. And then if you discount all of those, you can't discount Jesus because he's, he's our savior. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16. This should put the debate to rest. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. So our original uh, mandate in Genesis was to be image bearers or icons for God. We're supposed to reflect who God is and how we live our lives. And yes, sin broke that down and deformed that process. But Jesus, through his death and resurrection and the spirit came in and reinvigorated that mandate. That those of us who look to Jesus for life are filled with his spirit to once again take up that mantle of that original calling to go into our world and be good and do good to the glory of God. So that's one misunderstanding. A second misunderstanding is that good works are opposed to faith. Uh, we, we know just a cursory reading of scripture and we grew up post-reformation, we, reformation, we learned that we're saved by grace through faith. That's absolutely 100% true. I like to say, I'm not saved and you're not saved through our good works. We're saved through Jesus's good work. But I also like to say we're not saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. And that's a really, really important thing. One of the most ridiculous concerns I hear, and I'll, I'm just being blunt here, hopefully I'm not offending anybody, is when I hear church people say, when a church, a community of Jesus followers begins to focus on doing good and doing works of justice in the community, they're like, I don't know, I think we're getting away from the gospel. And I'm just like, what? Like, I think, literally, I think the writers in the New Testament would have the very opposite concern. I think if they were to come in and see uh, communities of Jesus followers, that aren't doing visible good in the community, they would really question whether they understood the gospel. So I think it's a false dichotomy. James, the brother of Jesus, writes exhaustively on this topic. And he says that faith that is not accompanied by good work is useless. In the Greek, there's this really funny turn of phrase. James is essentially saying, faith that does not work, does not work. <laughs> real faith, real faith in Jesus works. It works itself out. Back to the book that we just came out of for 11 weeks. This is such a great letter. I can't leave it yet. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Yes. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Yes. Not by works so that no one can boast. Yes. But here's, then, here's what Paul says. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to what? Do good works to do tov works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, faith is not opposed to good works. They complement one another. Um, again, we're not saved by good works. We're saved to good works. 
Scott told me in writing his book that they were really, really careful. I think he said they only used one living example of goodness because they were too concerned that people who were still alive might still go and do bad. And so they chose a bunch of dead people for, for uh, examples of goodness. And they said their, their chief example of goodness, I bet you could guess it if I gave you a, a minute or two, is Fred Rogers, otherwise known as Mr. Rogers. Uh, Fred was a passionate follower of Jesus. Uh, he went to seminary, he thought he was gonna be a pastor, and then he said God called him to be a missionary to children. And for 30 years, he led this TV show, um, renowning success called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And for 30 years on that show, and the people that were involved in it, he maintained, as a follower of Jesus, a culture of tove, a culture of goodness. This was not by happenstance. As you uh, read stories of Fred's life, he was very disciplined, and he would get up every single day between 4.30 and 5.30, start his day on his knees reading scripture, and then he'd go for a swim. And through that whole morning process, he said he was going through in his mind who he would encounter on his staff, who he might interview, who was going to be on the show, who might cross his path. And he was taking the scripture that he reflected on in the morning and prayed over, and he was praying it into their lives. Fred could not imagine a world where, where, where his faith and what he was learning in Scripture was not connected vitally to how he lived and doing goodness to those in his path. Uh, he, he was a man of goodness. Elizabeth Siemens, who worked really closely with Fred, and if you read stories of Fred's life, you can't find anyone who says that Fred wasn't a man of goodness. They just don't exist. And Elizabeth says it well. Uh, she says he was not proud or arrogant. He didn't take anything or anyone for granted ever. He was flawed, but he was, listen to this, a really, really great man. And here's it, it's more important. And he was a good man. There's a lot of great men and great women who aren't good men and good women. She says Fred was both. Thank goodness for examples like that. Finally, uh, misunderstanding of, of goodness. Uh, we don't want to be known as do-gooders. Somehow that's got like a negative connotation. And this is understandable. All these are understandable. Uh, we, we know the Bible tells us not to be arrogant, that God opposes that. We know Jesus was, was constantly going at the Pharisees who kind of were the do-gooders of their day. They did all these kind of visible things for show. But here's the deal, and I was really reflecting on this a lot as, as I was writing this message. I think Jesus is principally with the Pharisees talking about very specific things like how they prayed and how they gave and, and how they just regularly would do it for show and, and for their own glory. Uh, in the same instance, we go back to the verse we read earlier. Let me, it's, it's, it, it bears repeating. Uh, Jesus said, let your light shine so that others can see your good deeds and give God glory. He's explicitly clear. That, that he wants us to be known as do-gooders. And then Peter, going back to the, the passage that Hannah read, says, live such good lives so that people will see our good deeds and glorify God. Here's the stipulation of where we get stuck. And we have to be careful with this. If we're just doing good for our own glory, and certainly that happens. It's happened with me. It happens with all of us. We all have that ego pride thing going on that God opposes, and that's sin, and we should not be doing those things. We need to constantly be checking our spirits and praying over uh, if we have an agenda and what we're trying to accomplish and have accountability in our lives. But that shouldn't remove us from taking our faith and making it visible and doing good for the glory of God. That's always in these verses. If we're doing good and, and, and we're being good for the glory of God, that's not only appropriate, we're called to be that. 
I would say there's never been a time in my lifetime that we need to be known as do-gooders more than right now. Please, can we have that? When you ask people like what they think of church and Christian, usually it's not positive right now. It'd be great if they're like, yeah, they do a lot of good. They're good people. I'll take that. And I think we can look back to our brothers and sisters in the first couple of centuries, again, flawed. They were not perfect. But I would argue, and I think sociologists have, they literally changed the world by doing good and by being good. We know they fed the poor and they rescued abandoned uh, children. Uh, they ministered to the sick and dying during really horrible plagues. They built uh, orphanages. They built hospitals. They built schools. It was very, very visible. They took Jesus's words and Peter's words seriously, not for their own glory, but for the glory of God. We have quotes from Roman leaders and even Roman emperors who were frustrated at this little ragtag group of Jesus followers for how much good they were doing. Another story, what does this look like? Uh, William Booth grew up in Nottingham, England in the mid 19th century. Uh, he, he became a follower of Jesus at a very young age, loved God's word, loved to preach the gospel even at a young age. Catherine Mumford, she was also a follower of Jesus from a young age and she uh, first heard William preach on a street corner uh, outside the blind uh, beggar pub, and she, she knew right away she had met the man that she was meant to be with. They married in 1865, and together they began a ministry of preaching out in the streets uh, outside the blind beggar pub, and many became followers of Jesus. But they didn't just preach the good news, they absolutely lived the good news. And the Booths created and founded what was called the Christian Mission that then was renamed uh, the Salvation Army. Um, Catherine has this great quote that, uh, to, that, that to, to better the future, we must disturb the present. So they continue to faithfully preach the good news and live the good news. They sought a couple things they did. They sought safer working conditions in matchstick factories, which were horrible conditions for the most vulnerable and the poor. They even started their own matchmaking company to ensure that called Lights in Darkest England. They went toe to toe with, with the sex trafficking industry in this day, even went to parliament uh, to uh, demand changes in the laws to protect the young uh, vulnerable women who are being trafficked. Uh, Catherine talked about the three S's of the Salvation Army were soup, soap, and salvation. I love that. The Booths understood that you have to start with good works that lead to goodwill, then, then lead to the, the good news, good news and sharing the gospel, excuse me. Uh, the Salvation Army now has a membership of 1.7 million and they're in 132 countries. Oh, goodness, we need to tell these stories more. We need to see what it looks like so we can not only be tellers of the good news, but we can also live it. I have people occasionally uh, put forth the question, you know, are you an evangelical? And as with any question, I often respond, well, what do you mean? <laughs> I don't like to answer a question without knowing what that person means because words are important. It's so important. This is what this whole series is about, that we, that we uh, clarify what a word means. So if the person means um, maybe like the more recent form of the word where it's attached to a political ideology or maybe a specific political party or a politician, I say, absolutely not. And again, I'm not making a political statement here. I just bow the knee to one king and it's not a politician, it's no political party. So if you're meaning that, like, no, I follow King Jesus, period, into discussion. 
But the etymology, the actual word evangelical is beautiful. It goes back to a Greek word, euangelion. And really you could translate this word as being a people of the good news. That's beautiful. Now, if that's what you mean, a hearty yes. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I want us to be people of the good news. Um, to use the title of Scott and Laura's book, will, is New Hope or will New Hope become a church called Tove? Man, I hope and I pray that's what we are and that's what we're becoming. Cultural guru Andy Crouch says it only takes, uh, for, for a goodness culture to form, it only takes a small group of people uh, who, who are in a, a position of, of leadership that are committed to goodness. That's it. Just doggedly committed to goodness. And uh, I'm all in. Um, I, I don't think I'm alone. <laughs> I hope I'm not alone. Uh, but I invite you into that journey. Uh, as, as our church, we seek continually to become people of the good news. And the world desperately needs communities to be people of the good news. Where can we even start with this? All right, let's not start with these wonderful but like overwhelming stories like the Salvation Army, right? That happened slowly over many decades in time. I think we start by just this week. And I challenge you to pray this way and to see this way and to think this way. This week, who's in your path? Who, who's naturally in your path? And what is it like to display Tove to that person? To, to, to be people of goodness, to do good for those in our path. I think that's it. That's where it starts. Person by person, choosing goodness, being devoted to goodness for the glory of God, empowered by the spirit of God. That's the only way we could do it uh, for God's glory. That will, as we've experienced over history, change the world. I truly, deeply believe that. And that excites me every morning to get out of bed thinking, Wow, I get an opportunity today by God's grace for God's glory to be good and to do good. And maybe if by God's grace we're able to accomplish that, maybe one day when we pass from this world, and for all of us it'll be very soon, right? And we shed our earth suits and we enter the presence of Jesus, maybe, just maybe, Jesus will lock eyes with us and say, well done, my good or my tove and faithful servant. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for this call to goodness. Uh, we, in a world where there's lots of rah, there's lots of evil, uh, there's even evil lurking in all of our hearts. We see it, we sense it. It's on full display every day. Uh, we need desperately people of goodness and communities of goodness. And we can't accomplish that apart from you. You're the source of all goodness, God. And we ask uh, by your grace, for your glory, that you would work that out in each of us and that we would be a community, New Hope, that we would be a community of goodness, God. That would be awesome. I, I, hope, I hope that's already going on. I think it is. Um, but I pray for, for more of that, God. Not, not for ourselves, just for you. You're the king. We want you exalted and glorified. So thanks in our short lives. Uh, we could be doing lots of stuff that's meaningless and will not last, but I, I'm convinced that as we're about goodness, those things last. Those things persevere, and thanks for calling us to that, God. Uh, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.